And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Green light 3-0 and she's gone! Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show. It's Monday, October 30th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Bridge really off again this week, but, you know, working of course, because it's the World Series, and it's been a great World Series so far, especially Game 1, you know, uh, the on-deck crew, Stephen and Levi talked about it a lot earlier in the day on this feed, but as I think about playoff games in my lifetime, this one actually does rank at or near the top of the list in terms of drama uh, and just overall excitement. Yeah, it was it was a really exciting game. That was that was a great introduction to this series and I think one thing that I was worried about was you know, my prognostication going in was that like this Rangers lineup would be the differentiator because we've got I think some staffs that kind of have some strengths and flaws that line up pretty well with each other in terms of pitching, in terms of defense. Uh there's a great piece today about uh from Levi Weaver about how uh, how the Rangers have gotten much better at defense year over year. Nate Lowe specifically, but a lot of them. Of course, Seager's defense has been better this year. And then D-backs are, I think, consensus one or two best defensive team in the majors. So you've got some pretty good defensive squads. Um, and I thought this lineup, the Rangers, would be such a differentiator. So I was really watching to see how much offense the D-backs would show. And, uh, you know, now in hindsight, like, oh, well, they scored nine in the second. But like in the first in the first one, I was like, oh, like, is this going to be like a four nothing, you know, type series? Uh, but the D-backs offense came through and, uh, you know, credit to to all their hitters. Like it wasn't just one or two hitters. It's been a deeper lineup than I thought. I thought the bottom third of this lineup would be really terrible and. Um, it hasn't really been the case so far. Yeah, I mean, you just think about the the way the end of game one played out, right? You get the situation the way you want it. We've talked about some concerns about this Diamondbacks bullpen over the course of the season. I think we've seen in the playoffs they've got a little more depth than people gave them credit for. Some of that's getting some guys healthy and calling up uh, younger guys like Salfranc and just like mixing and matching in different ways. They've done that really well to get to this point. To get to the ninth inning, of game one with a two-run lead and to have your best reliever, Paul Seawald, out there in a spot where you think you can just close it out. This has gone to script. This is great. We're going to steal game one only to have Corey Seager hit just a moonshot home run. That was a huge, huge moment because aside from you know the eventual Adolis Garcia game-winning home run in the 10th, you start to wonder like, oh, is this going to have any sort of carryover effect in the game too? Like you, you, you had everything you wanted and it didn't go well. And the answer was a resounding no. I mean, the Diamondbacks pounded out 16 hits in game two. They had a hard hit rate above 50% as a team, which 
is just impressive through and through. And then some of that was piling some runs on late against Martin Perez. But to just come back to the yard the next day and really brush it off uh, to even the series at one, bringing it back to Arizona, says a lot about this team having a, a short memory and the ability to just turn around quickly. Yeah, and you know, a couple key uh, players at the bottom of that lineup. I mean, one is one that you liked before the season and I didn't. Uh, give you some flowers for Geraldo Perdomo. Um, and uh, I just didn't see it because I, I'm. if I have a bias, it's towards hitters that hit the ball hard. And Perdomo doesn't really do that. He does not. He does not. <laughs> but he, Confirmed. But, but, he, but he, has, he controls the strike zone really well. And he makes contact. And that's something that actually the, the statistics have proven that contact plays up against better stuff. So as stuff increases, your bat-to-ball ability and your ability to control for the strike zone, it becomes more important. Um, and I don't know exactly why that is. I think... Uh, I think maybe you're just battling the if you're like if it's against like top end stuff you're just battling you're just trying to put that bat on ball and your ability to put that bat on ball you know increases maybe also high stuff guys can just strike out guys that don't have good bat to ball you know and and so uh, just you know putting that lottery ticket out there but it, whatever it is Perdomo has been I think pretty huge to this lineup um, you know he's hitting 400 500 400 so far uh, in this short series. Uh, but also Tommy Pham uh, has put together a lot of good at-bats. You know, he had that four uh, single, or was it singles all? But he had four hits in uh, in game two, even though he had the toot blonde. Uh, if anybody knows what a, a toot blonde is, it's uh, thrown out on the bases like a nincompoop. Um, <laughs> is, the, is what that stands for. And uh, he got caught by the inside move at second base, uh, just wandering off the bag. But otherwise... He's been uh, really good at the bottom of the lineup, and they've all made up for the the only one that really hasn't hit so far uh, this whole postseason is Christian Walker, and uh, that they've done all this without Christian Walker gives me hope that like this is going to be a tight series, and Walker's going to wake up eventually, and uh, it's going to be a little back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I think aside from Perdomo doing more than expected throughout the regular season and showing up in the playoffs as your nine hitter. That's kind of nice. Alec Thomas is another yeah. guy that hasn't consistently had the underlying metrics that a lot of us were hoping for, but he's showing some signs in the postseason that maybe there is still a little bit more that we can project on. Obviously, a great defensive center fielder that always paves the way for a lot of playing time. Kind of look at the big picture. Um, you know, Gabby Moreno is excellent. He, as long as he doesn't suffer like another concussion during the postseason, especially he's an important piece for them. Clearly a leader already on this, this team, but I think he could come through and, and you know, provide something as well. Um, and I think the other part of this is that it, it's an opportunity for Corbin Carroll to sort of ascend to superstar status. That's been the, the, the best thing about this Diamondbacks team going on a run. And we talked about it maybe last week is they might be a year or two ahead of schedule, but that's fine. They've got some pieces in place that can absolutely uh, do some damage. Now, the the story in Game 2 is Merrill Kelly. And the bigger story with Merrill Kelly, the more you think about it, the more impressive it is, right? This is a guy that spent four years in the KBO pitching in Korea, uh, a guy that grew up in Arizona, went to Arizona State, and is now you know, pitching for the home club. And it's it's just like when he came back from Korea, 
Merrill Kelly, to me, looked like your prototypical number four, number five starter. Kind of a low fours, mid fours ERA. Maybe the most interesting thing about him at the time was, hey, he's going to chew up a lot of innings. So, you know, your other guys maybe have a little less weight to pull because Merrill Kelly is a good innings eating back end starter. And this year we saw improvement. We saw a strikeout rate that jumped. And given his age, he's 35 years old. That's pretty surprising. He was excellent in game two. And and he's one of those guys that I probably wrote him off three years ago as far as making an improvement like this. So uh, I was stunned that he put together the regular season he did. And I think the question a lot of people have is, how is this happening for him at such an advanced age? What has made Merrill Kelly so effective this season and in the postseason compared to what he was doing in his first few seasons after he came back stateside? Um, you know, one thing that I, I've heard from uh, from a fair amount of uh, players that have gone overseas is that their command has improved uh, when they've gone overseas. And there's a slightly weird reasoning for this, but uh, I've heard it from enough pitchers that have gone over and come back, is that the tight zone, the, the, the strike zone is tighter for Americans in Japan and Korea. <laughs> it's like that, you know, we've actually seen this demonstrated in America too. Like there, there's bias uh, that runs along uh, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, you know, uh, you know, there's different, different biases in American umpires that have been shown. Uh, so I'm not saying that like, you know, this, this is something that, Oh, shame on the NPB for doing this. It's like something that's, sort of inherent uh, in umpiring that we've seen in different leagues. But, uh, you know, when you were faced with a, a, a tighter a tighter zone, you just have to, you have to be able to command to a tighter zone. Like you have to improve your command to, to live in the NPB, uh, which is the Nippon, Nippon Professional Baseball is the Japanese league. So, you know, when you're, when you, when you can, when you're over in Korea or you're over in Japan, you're faced with a, a tighter strike zone for whatever reason, uh, you can improve your command. So that's one thing that I've heard from, from Kelly and from other guys that have come back. The other is that, um, you know, he's a guy that lives off of, uh, having a wide variety of pitches and commanding them well. So, um, you know, I think his changeup is actually, uh, sneaky good, like a really, a really good changeup and his curveball is top shelf too, but he has to do enough with all three of his fastballs and his three secondaries, um, so that he never gets predictable. And I think playing against, uh, lineups in Japan, in Japan and Korea that are, something like triple a or quadruple a you know like you know getting against sophisticated lineups that are trying to win as opposed to maybe lineups in the minor leagues here that are all they're all working on something you know they're all trying to just demonstrate that they're ready or whatever it is you know um you know working against lineups that are trying to win you start to be like oh i can do this and i can do this and i can you know i can play around with my mix i can do this when they think this and so that's what I see when I see Kelly is a guy who can place these pitches uh, at the right time uh, with good command, has a big mix. Um, and uh, for what it's worth, like, uh, I think um, I'm, I'm making sure of this right now, but like uh, a little bit of a velo boost in the postseason. Um, you know, he was sitting uh, 91s and, and 92s during the season. Uh, he's been uh, sitting 93 
uh, in the last two starts of the postseason, and that hasn't affected his command in any deleterious way. So large mix, lots of different fastballs. I wrote a piece last week about the new battle for the top of the zone, which talks about how if you have a four-seamer at the top of the zone, batters are getting better. Marcus Simeon, other guys have talked about uh, you know, you just aim two or three balls above where the ball is supposed to come in. And that's, you get on top of the ball and you use your top hand and you, and you, and that's how you hit the, the four seamers, right? So, uh, if you have a two seamer and you see that they're hitting your four seamer, then what you do is you throw a high two seamer. And this year in baseball, we saw 3000 more high two seamers and sinkers than we'd seen before. And so, you know, you could think of that like, oh, Oh, it's a high fastball. It's a high hard pitch. That's a fastball. I'm going to aim for the top of it. Get my top hand on top of it. Oh, it's dipping. (laughs) It's a high dipping pitch. And so I had a video of of Tommy Pham missing over the top of a high sinker uh, because he thought it was a four seamer. Um, And there's there's so there's more of that. So what you've got with Kelly is a guy with three fastballs. So if he if 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 the hitter sees hard you know, they'll think maybe hard this way. They'll think, oh, it, hard four-seamer, hard sinker. Well, they only, you know, Kelly could make it so they only have a third chance of being right. You yeah. know, because <laughs> he could, oh, you thought it was a four-seamer, it was a cutter. Oh, you thought it was a cutter, it was a sinker. You know, so like he can, with three fastballs, he can really play. Hitters just want to be able to say, I'm going to pigeonhole you. If it's hard, it's this. If it's soft, it's this. And he can really play with all those definitions. Yeah, and it's interesting too. You mentioned how good the changeup is when you pair a great changeup with three different fastballs, and you also have two breaking balls that can show up on occasion. Whether or not those pitches are even good is more just you have to think about them, you have to account for them. It's something you can sneak in in certain situations at the very least. I think that's what makes me wonder if, you know, is this version of Merrill Kelly, when you look at someone like Lance Lynn, when you say a lot of fastballs, I'm like, oh, Lance Lynn, he's got a million fastballs. He doesn't have the other stuff. That Merrill yeah. Kelly has. Kelly has better secondaries than Lance Lynn. But I, I, I was like, I definitely thought of Lance Lynn recently. I was thinking of Kelly. I was like, Kelly is like a Lance Lynn with better secondaries. <laughs> right. If you're if you're Lance Lynn or you're the pitching coaches that work with Lance Lynn in the future, you're probably pointing to Merrill Kelly and saying, look, he's not he's not lighting up the radar gun. He's got some things that you do. You could take some of these approaches and maybe you know, make a version for yourself. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I thought there were some really interesting things about game planning behind the scenes. I saw Andy McCullough had a story about Dan Heron, who works, he, his title is a, a pitching strategist. 
for the Diamondbacks. We know Brent Strom, longtime Astros pitching coach, is the actual pitching coach for the Diamondbacks. Uh, there's, of course, uh, a little bit in there about those two working together. Very different philosophies, but making it work, which I think is, is really interesting. So definitely read Andy's story about that. But you start to think about the level of planning that actually goes into each and every matchup within a game and the difficulties that I think are presented by an extended series in the postseason like only only compounds that it makes these matchups even more intense because you have to have extra wrinkles or something that the hitter hasn't necessarily what are seen we gonna before keep in the pocket for game six or seven you know <laughs> are we just gonna show everything <laughs> you got to be good enough to get there to, for yeah. that, to even to get to the second third fourth iteration of your game plan but I thought um, there were a couple interesting things. There was a great thread from Trevor May uh, on Twitter breaking down how he would pitch to Adolis Garcia with his stuff, which is not saying here's Brandon Fott and here's how Brandon Fott's going to try and do it in in game three. But I thought that was really insightful. Just looking at all the different uh, places that Garcia is, is good, places where he's got some weaknesses and some holes and how you take your pitch mix and your location strategy and sort of marry all of those things together. And then you start thinking about the other side, right? Trevor's perspective is just the pitching perspective. The hitter has to sort of anticipate all the things a pitcher might do and then react to that or plan for that. And it's just this amazing cat and mouse game that I think is so much more detailed now more than ever. It's always been there, but the amount of information everybody has at their fingertips makes this even more complex than it's ever been. Yeah, some of my favorite conversations in in the clubhouse I've ever had was when Dan Heron was pitching uh, and Zach Greinke was on his team with him. And we would get into uh, three-way conversations. In fact, uh, one of my favorite conversations was with Trevor May and Max Scherzer uh, last year about Stuff Plus, or maybe this year. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, of a, a corollary there. But, um, you know, one of the things that that makes it so difficult is what you're talking about the hitter anticipating his own his own scouting report and so there's this concept in in the military called the red team and the red team uh is basically uh trying to scout yourself is trying to beat yourself so if you have cybersecurity, uh the red team is trying to hack into your own stuff and so you can tell how people might hack into into your stuff and so or the red team if you have a base the red team attacks your base so that you can see how people would do it and what you would do uh in response and so i think most teams now have a red team uh when they're talking about scouting and so um if you're the hitters on a team the red team comes up to you and goes this is how we think they're going to attack you you know, because we have all access to all these true media things. We have, we, 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 we know where your cold zones are. Like you, like we, so uh, Adolis, like, this is what they're going to do to you, you know? And you saw, uh, that, uh, Garcia actually reacted to this. I, I got, uh, I got some texts about this that were, that were interesting. Um, what was it? Adolis' swing rate in the in the playoffs before last night was fifty nine percent. He swung at ten of thirty in game one. That's a red team thing. The big difference in approach. It's That's a like, micro hey, level, dude. Like they're gonna try and pick you apart uh, high in the zone. So if it's high today, don't swing at it at all. Yeah, yeah. There's so on 
on that thread that I mentioned from Trevor May, Lance Brozdowski, who we bring up quite a bit on, on Rates and Barrels for some of the great stuff that he puts out there, basically asked, like, well, when is that actually like a real adjustment? Like, when do you as a pitcher have to change based on a hitter showing something different like that? And this is where there's there's the desire to have statistically meaningful things that you can lean on. And then there are situations like this where there are not statistically meaningful things that are going to pop up. You have to decide. Some of the stuff he's making decisions off of are very few pitches, too. If you look at the Trevor right. May thread, you're like, are you making these decisions based on five pitches? I have some of these some of these heat maps. You can actually see the pitches. There's like three pitches <laughs> the on them. You, know, I you can see the seams on the ball. I would, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, don't pitch him there because the one time you pitched him there, so he hit a homer. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. so, yeah. So that's part of it for sure. Yeah, just an incredible amount of detail. So check out that but, uh, thread. If you but I done so also already. like, you know, there's also the secondary level of like, okay, so I've I've determined that high fastballs to Adolis Garcia. That, that's the blue zone on there. He obviously doesn't like it. I'm going to come in there with some high fastballs because that's blue there. And red team goes over to, to Garcia and says, hey, you know, maybe they don't have to because Garcia has seen this all year. He's like, he swung oh, yeah. through them. He's like, they're coming. The high fastballs again, you know. So they tell him either you can anticipate that. Maybe you can do the top hand adjustment and, and, and smack one of those out of the park or uh, just take those. You know, like just today, just take those. Maybe that's what he did in game one is is, is take those high fastballs. If they, you have a really good hitter and you're looking at small blue zones, one of these like low and away for Garcia even was just like, it wasn't like all low and away. It was like a just the corner was like, if you have these really good hitters that can make adjustments and they know what you're going to do because they've been, they've had their red team come in or they, or they just see it. They know what you're going to do. Sometimes it makes sense to do something suboptimal. <laughs> Mookie Betts, for example, has a weird blue zone, middle, middle. You know, I don't know why. It's just, it shows in some of his heat maps. Maybe you throw him a middle, middle fastball, you know, in a 2 0 count. <laughs> you don't. Just be like, you don't. I'll never get you that. just don't. No, you <laughs> still don't. Do that's, you? that's too you far don't? down. Too far too down far? the suboptimal rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. like, there's there are levels of suboptimal that are clever because they are unexpected, and there are levels of suboptimal that are stupid because it's just too bad of an idea. This Where's is that line. Where is the line? Middle middle is on the wrong side of that line. <laughs> okay. Where exactly the rest of the zones fall, I'm not certain. But yeah, you're well, not going middle say, middle. High sinkers and high sliders are right there on that line because if you think about it like throw a high sinker and you miss a little bit and that's just a ball that dips right into the middle of the zone throw a high slider and and not really get it high enough and that's just that's a hanger so uh yeah and sometimes you know also you do the scouting report and you're like ooh, like i was looking at brandon fought and he's moved on the rubber and and he's starting to throw a sinker and the move on the rubber you know, I don't want to get too complicated into it, but it changed the angle of his pitch coming in, the horizontal angle of his pitch. And if you study horizontal angle, you can see that, you know, it creates swings in certain places and takes in other places. So I was looking at this and I was like, oh, this opens up the front door sweeper for Brandon Font because the way he's standing now, you know, they're going to, he's going to get more takes on the inside. So what he should do is throw a sweeper at the right-hander's hip 
and let the movement take it into the zone and he'll get a bunch of takes. And I was thinking about that in my head and I was like, he does not throw that pitch very often right now. So as a coach, I come up to Brandon Fott, <laughs> a rookie who had a 5'7 ERA this year. He's on a good stretch of the postseason. I say, okay, today <laughs> against Annalise Garcia, I want you to throw a sweeper that's going to hit him. And <laughs> instead, the movement's going to take it into the zone and you'll get, a, you'll get a called strike. It'll be beautiful. It'll be so good. And and Brent Vaughn's going to look at me and be like, you want me to aim at Adolis Garcia? <laughs> He's a large human on top of all of this. Who just had like a whole, even in Trevor Bay's thread, he's like, oh yeah, up and in. That's where Brian Abreu was probably aiming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's like, you're also, that's what I liked about that piece with Heron too. It's like, you're, these are humans. You know, and you have to have some empathy and like some understanding of who they are as, as people and emotionally. And you can't just be like, well, the numbers spit out that you got to throw some front door sweepers today, dude. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I've thrown like five of them all right. year. <laughs> so thanks for that scouting report. I'll try. I'll try a couple today, I guess, <laughs> in the World Series. <laughs> Great time to experiment with things, yeah. right? So the series, of course, is, is shifting to Arizona for the next three games. It could end in five. It's possible. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going at least six. I'm going to stick I'm with my original prediction. going to game prediction. five as a fan. Yeah, you get to go to game five. Our fun. buddy Chris Welsh is going to game three. So we're going to have a, a lot of... game four, if you see Mama. Might be a guest on the pod Mama next Sarah's. week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's awesome. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the nano experience a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano-instrumentation, all through a barely-there poke-hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. 
Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. The matchup in Game 3, Max Scherzer versus Brandon Fott. Like, it, I, I, Levi and Steven talked about it on deck this morning, and the depth of Scherzer's outing in Game 3, I think, is really important because you don't have an off day until Thursday. Mm-hmm. And if Scherzer goes really short in this game, some of your preferred long options and what is more of a bullpen game. I realize the health of John Gray and that he's back kind of changes some things a little bit. It could hurt you in a pretty big way in game four, just based on your kind of starting rotation construction as it is right now. So we've talked about Scherzer a couple of times already in this postseason. What's your game plan if you're the Diamondbacks looking at Scherzer and the struggles he's had? Like, how do you how do you make life difficult for him? On, on top of the possibility that he could make life difficult for himself. He has not had his breaking balls since he came back from injury. And this is something that shows up in, you know, I've got a stat stuff plus that looks at the shapes and the velos of it. But also, if you just watch, he can't locate them. Um, and he's had a really, really hard time locating his slider in the zone. Um, and that's what makes Masters so great is he has good fastballs and he has good breaking balls and you don't know what count you're going to get either in, but if he can't throw a two Oh slider in the zone, um, you know, and, and he's always had like, he's always had like four breaking balls and great touch on four breaking balls. If he doesn't have that, then he's going to have to go to the fastball in fastball counts and he's going to have to go to the fastball when he needs a strike and he becomes much more uh, predictable. So I think I would just uh, sit fastball. I would take a very conventional approach. You know, we just talked about like uh, how crazy we can get in the head. I think this one would be like, I'm seeing dead red until he proves to me that he can throw a slider in the zone when he needs a strike because he has not shown that ability since he came back from injury. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense based on how things have played out for him so far uh, in this postseason. You talked about Fott with the adjustment to the other side of the rubber, and this goes back to about August. He's pitched a lot better since then, right? The regular season numbers, the ERA was close to six, but if you kind of slice it from August 10th forward when he started making those changes, he's been a pretty different pitcher during that time. Um, you know, What do you think the Rangers are trying to do to make Fott uncomfortable? Because this is a lineup that, it's just like the problems Fott had to solve against Philly and maybe even a little more challenging in some ways at the very bottom where some of those bottom hitters for the Rangers are a tick above the the bottom hitters he was facing in the NLCS against the Phillies. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that he's continued to do, so, you know, in August he went down to the minor leagues and I, I just wanted to say like really quickly, you've got a bunch of players here who've benefited from a reset. Uh, on all these on these teams where you're talking about Alec Thomas he he was a better player when he came back from the minor leagues uh Brandon Fott went down to the minor leagues came back up with a new release point um and then over time started uh actually throwing the sinker more so there's the release point that happened after he came back uh, you know in July but then he started throwing the sinker a lot more in September um and if you look at at his splits uh Fott you know, after he started uh, doing both, you know, throwing from that uh, that that new position, and then also uh, you know throwing the sinker, um, you know, his strikeout rate was pretty pretty decent, um, and he's been a great pitcher in the postseason with those things. So um, I think that there's just uh, you know 
there's some scouting reports that people have that are old. Um, and then you just don't have, because you don't want to, you're like, oh, well, I, I don't want to be looking at this heat map where it has three pitches on it. Um, but if you look at Brandon fought before the move on the rubber, that's not useful. And then if you don't, you don't look at him when he's been using the sinker as much as he's used, that's not useful. So you really only have like September and October to look at. And if you're trying to like, be like, oh, well, I'm a right-hander, then you're cutting that in half. So you're really only looking at like 300, 400 pitches from him and then you're cutting it into pitch types you know and you're like and you're cutting it to zones like people are looking at things where they're like they've they're looking at these heat maps so there's three or four pitches you know where they need to look and and i think you know i i wouldn't i don't know what to do in this case i think it i think every team should have a young guy that's like pretty good that has made a recent adjustment that nobody's seen ready for the playoffs. You know, <laughs> like, like, uh, I, I don't even know how good Banner Fott's going to be next year, but right now he's doing stuff that nobody has really a, a, that great advanced Intel on the sample sizes aren't great. And so what would I tell a hitter is maybe see ball, hit ball. Um, you know, people have been aggressive against him and people have been passive against him, and neither one has really worked. Uh, he's been really good at sort of tweaking small things and, and, and getting the most out of whatever approach the hitters are doing against him. The Phillies tried both. They were aggressive and patient against him and neither one really worked that well. Do you think there's any, any situation outside of a massive lead where Rafat gets more than the, the 18, 19, 20 batters? We've seen the, the pretty quick hook. I mean, the only reason I'm even thinking it's possible they'd push him a little is if he is holding a two days, or three run two. lead or something. Yeah, first in three days could force things to be different. But similar to the problems you have at the top of the Phillies lineup, you know, the matchup with, with Bryce Harper in the NLCS is kind of like what he's got with Corey Seager in this series where... It's like Brandon Fott versus Corey Seager. If he finds a way to not get destroyed by him the first two times, you really don't want to tempt fate and give Corey Seager a third look at him. Yeah, like did you like if you watch the Phillies series, like Fott against the lefties was not comfortable. Yeah, you know, it, like every every at bat between Fott and Schwarber was like nine pitches. <laughs> you know and it was all just like ooh, just <laughs> trying to dance around the nitro zone trying to throw weird pitches throwing sweepers you know to lefties you shouldn't do that but like you just got to keep schwarber guessing you know um and at one time he even got schwarber i think on a high forcing fastball which is like schwarber's that was the pitch that schwarber like couldn't hit for a long time but then figured out how to hit like he was getting he got schwarber he was throwing low sinkers to schwarber which is like you know, you just had to like do crazy stuff because he had to figure out a way to get those guys out. And Schwarber and Harper, the lefties were the hard ones for him. Even with a good changeup that Fott has, it's hard. You don't want to throw a sinker to them. You know, your four seam's not that great. You know, you don't want to throw the sweeper to them. You're just kind of like, I can't just throw only changeups to these guys. I got to throw something else. So, yeah, the Seeger thing. I think the 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 third time Seeger's up is when Fott is out and. The, I know that people will roll their eyes and be like, oh, analytics is taking over the game and, you know, this is a problem. And, you know, if, if Fod is dealing, he should be left in. And, you know, I get all that. And in fact, you know, there are some analytical arguments that, you know, teams can get into trouble taking their stars out early. One, 
relievers are worse every pitch they throw over the course of the season. That's been shown. Two, relievers are worse on back-to-back days and back-to-back-to-back days. That's been shown. Their velo is down. Their command is down. Three, and this is just out in the Saber Journal, this is newest, newest research, is over the course of a series, the more times you see a reliever, the better you get at them. And that effect is bigger than the third time through the order penalty. It's like a really big thing. So, you know, every time you run Ryan Thompson out there, the first time is going to be good. The second time, if it's in a back-to-back, it's going to be worse. And if it's third time, it's a back-to-back-to-back, and the same hitters have seen him three days in a row, somebody's going to get to him. So if there is some sort of lead, I would passionately argue for leaving Brandon Fott in and not giving the opponents more looks at my relievers that I only have a few that I trust anyway. (laughs) And I think the threshold for me is a three-run lead. If you're up three and you get to that point where he's starting to see the lineup a third time. There's no one on base. You could just walk Seager. <laughs> let it go. Yeah, like, let's see what happens. As soon as there's trouble, then play the matchups, go to your bullpen. But he may be able to navigate some of the the bumps the third time through if everything is working, if the strategy is, is good enough to work against these hitters. I think the key difference for me, though, too, when you think about NLCS versus World Series and these matchups, and instead of being Schwarber and Harper, it's Evan Carter as the other guy with Corey Seager as the, the lefties up top, right? And I I think Evan Carter is a fantastic player. He's, he's He doesn't have the experience that Schwarber does. And I don't feel, even though Carter can do damage, I don't feel like a mistake quite to Evan stuff. Carter is yeah. quite as likely to end up 450 feet away, even though, again, Evan Carter is a very good young player. So it could be a slightly easier combination of matchups, but I would also say the righties are going to be a problem too. I'm, I'm also interested to see Marcus Simeon. Is he going to get going in this series? It seems like it's inevitable because Marcus Simeon's been such a great player since the Rangers signed him. There was that brief lull first like six weeks into year one where he, he was struggling and he's been fantastic in the time since then. Can he get right here mid series? Yeah, what's his uh, postseason line? It's been a whole problem in the postseason. 194, 265, 226 in the postseason. And that's in 68 plate appearances. That's, uh, that's, that, that would be a bad month. Do you remember what was the year that he had the, he just, it was last year when he signed the contract and, you know, he was like the, one of the worst regulars for the first month of the season. And we had a long conversation about that once. And, you know, I don't want to give, I'm not like in the business of excuses necessarily, but I think as an explanation, changing teams, not being able to to work out in a team facility and, you know, moving his whole family and his kids to a new situation. And uh, he explained that like he was, uh, you know, trying to be awake to, to, to send the kids to school at like six or seven in the morning, you know, after, you know, playing till midnight one or whatever you know like after being awake then you know the night before and trying to you know put naps in there but it sounded exhausting just listening to it and i think that was a big explanation and as a guy who's played so many uh plate appearances you know he's just one of these post to post everyday guys i wonder if there is any fatigue in him right now um the the bat speed doesn't necessarily look all the way there uh, he's making contact, but there's no power behind it. 
Um, and he also made like a, a, a couple of mistakes in the field that I was like kind of just really surprised. It just looked like sort of concentration errors. I, I, I wonder if he's tired. I mean, I just, you know, it's, it's just, probably everyone's tired, but <laughs> I wonder if somehow, you know, all those plate appearances for him have added up to a little bit more fatigue than some of the, some of the guys out there. Yeah, you go back through the last three regular seasons, there's no player in Major League Baseball with more plate appearances than Marcus Simeon. 2,201 in the regular season, tack on the postseason this year on top of that. He just doesn't take days off totally a fair question to wonder if fatigue is starting to set in him set in here for him as we near the very end of October uh, quickly looking ahead just to game four in, in theory it's going to be some combination of probably Heaney Dunning Gray we'll see what they decide to do based on what happens in game three versus what I assume to be an Arizona bullpen that did the job in game four of the NLCS when they used eight pitchers right that was the game that Joe Maniply started we saw uh, Luis Frias Kyle Nelson like Castro and Saul guys Frank. Who the two innings? Thompson? The, I think it was Thompson. Sal Frank can usually give them more than one if they need it. Yeah, but, but he's got the command is so minus. I just wonder, like, how how much can you follow that same script, right? You want to follow that script again, but you... But that was, they seemed fairly lucky at the time that it yeah. all worked out. <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of just flirted with disaster and, and got away with it. In a, in a pretty difficult spot. I, I don't know if that can work twice against uh, top-level lineups. Yeah, you know, I, I think maybe they'll have to use some Ryan Nelson for some length, uh, <laughs> which is living on the edge uh, given the results. But uh, one thing that Ryan Nelson does have is an, a fastball with an interesting profile. So if you're not asking, you're not asking him to turn the lineup over, uh, in which case he can't keep throwing that same fastball, you know? Uh, but if you just ask him to turn the lineup over once, which is two innings, um, you know, two or three innings, then, uh, then I think he could do that. So I, I th- I'm, I'm guessing we're going to see Nelson in there just cause they, they need more length and, uh, you know, you just, if the, if the score turns, you know, they might go to Ryan Nelson for four or five because right. they, they got to protect that bullpen cause there's the next game, you know? Right. If you have any issues with Gallon or if you want to make sure you have everybody that you like available for game five, it's part of what makes the playoff baseball so challenging. Just making sure you've got the right guys available for the right spots and you don't always know what's behind door number two or what's going to happen in the next inning. But that's just the, the difficulty of managing the game. Looking back, it was Frias for one and a third, Castro for one and two thirds, Thompson for two. Those were the only three pitchers that got more than three outs for the Diamondbacks in that bullpen game in the last round. So something similar seems very likely for them in game four. And you kind of return to your, your game one matchup, Gallon versus Montgomery for uh, game five. So uh, a lot a lot there to like. Or Gallon versus Evaldi, right? That's the, that's the game one matchup. So nice to see that one coming back around in game five. It's a great pitching matchup for you since you're going to be on hand for that one. Oh yeah, that'll be fun. I'll be the in the stands with Paul Spore, um, who I've I've uh, done podcasts with in the past from over at Fangraph. So that'll be that'll be fun. And then uh, into that weekend, uh, the Arizona Fall League All Star Game, uh, which is always a, a crazy uh, transition to go from like <laughs> the World Series with you know they're selling standing room only tickets and. Uh, tickets are, are pretty expensive and it's like, I think it's going to be pretty wild. Like Tuesday night when my mom's going, it's going to be Halloween. 
Uh, you know, so that's going to be <laughs> yeah, pretty right. wild. And, um, you know, then the Arizona Fall League is like, you know, there might be 50 people in the stands for a game. Yeah, for the regular game. 30 people of them show are up for Fall Stars, at least. Like <laughs> Sunday night is the Fall Stars game. For anyone who's not familiar, they televise it on MLE Network. So if you're not going to be in Arizona, you can at least watch it. A lot of prospects that appear in that game end up playing in the big leagues the following season. So you and I will be there as part of a fantasy baseball conference. So beyond the athletic baseball show, we've got a rates and barrels that will come out on Tuesday. So if you're already thinking about next season, we have you covered there, and we're going to have an episode that we record while we're in Arizona as well. As for this show, we are signing off for today, but the Athletic Baseball Show returns on Tuesday. Always got the green light here. Green light 3-0, and she's gone! As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.